Hello everyone, and welcome to the long-awaited second episode of Gathering Thoughts, a podcast where we rise above division, absolutes, and myths, where we move away from our culture's fixed narratives towards new meaning. In short, a podcast to make you think. And boy, oh boy, you have a lot of thinking to do today, so let's just dive right into it. At the end of the last episode, I gave you a choice. A choice between going on, living your life in the matrix, thinking the same things, hearing the same arguments, or embarking with me on a journey, a quest for new ideas, new ways of looking at things. Some of these things might not be new historically, but I'm sure they will be new to most of us. So if in the last episode you chose to take the red pill, it's now time to start our journey. So, quoting again from The Matrix, Buckle up, baby, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Are you ready? Are you ready? How do you know what's right? How do you choose between A and B? Or Y and Z? Is it just reason? Or is it a feeling? Do you use your brain and gather the facts? Or do you follow your gut instinct? Or do you just know? What do you think? Are we humans rational? Or are we emotional? If we are rational beings, what use do we have for feelings and emotions? After all, aren't they the cause of most of our troubles? Some questions are best answered with a story. A story that helped science to uncover some of the great mysteries of the human brain. A story of incredible survival and inexplicable ruin. This is the story of Phineas Gage. It all started in Vermont in the summer of 1848. Phineas Gage is sitting by the shade. In his hand, a forgotten glass of lemonade. In his head, some very stubborn thoughts. What just happened to me, he thinks. A doctor will soon arrive and ask him the exact same question. What happened to him? What did happen to Phineas Gage? Let's go back a few minutes to when Phineas Gage is still working under the sun. Phineas Gage is a construction foreman. At only 25, he's in charge of a large group of men. And these men are building a railway. They are laying down the train tracks across the Green Mountains of Vermont. And remember, this is the 19th century, so not a lot of machinery for this work. It was mostly down to manpower. Oh, and forget about health and safety. But Phineas Gage carried out this heavy, physical job 
in the most efficient and capable manner. He was, according to his bosses, a model employee. Well-tempered, shrewd, smart and persistent in executing his plans of action. Building a railroad is about finding the path of least resistance. You can avoid mountains and slopes by twisting and turning the tracks in a detour. But sometimes detouring is too costly and you need to make way by force. That is, using explosives to blow up otherwise immovable hard rock. And this is Phineas Gage's strong suit. He's done it hundreds of times before. First you drill a hole into the rock. Then you fill this hole until about halfway with explosive powder. Next you insert a fuse. And then you cover this and the powder with sand. Now, very important, you need to carefully press down the sand against the powder so that the explosive charge blows down into the rock and not out through the hole. For this final step, Gage even has his own custom-made iron rod, a one meter long, six kilo metal bar that he'll use to gently pound down the sand before lighting up the fuse and clearing away, running for cover. So here we are, in a hot summer afternoon, in the green mountains of Vermont, as Phineas Gage and his men are getting ready to blow up another bit of rock to clear the way for the rail tracks. You know, just another day at the office. So Gage drills into the rock, pours in the explosive powder, inserts the fuse, and reaches for his iron rod, getting ready to tamp in, while one of his men will fill in the sand. But right then, someone calls Gage from behind. Carrying on as he was, he replies looking over his right shoulder, and distracted starts tamping in with his iron rod, before any sand had been poured into the hole. It only takes one tiny spark. The charge blows upwards, straight into Gage's face. Everyone is left stunned for a while, failing to grasp what just happened. Phineas Gage lies on the ground, alive and equally baffled. The rock remains in one piece. There is no sight of the iron rod. As the men help Gage to get up on his feet, they notice the bleeding from his left cheek and a hole on the top of his skull. Gage's head had just been pierced by his iron rod, propelled at great speed by the explosion entering the base of his skull through his left cheek, traversing the front of his brain, and finally exiting through the top of his head, into the air, whistling like fireworks on a summer night. All this in a split second after the blast. The iron rod would later be found some hundreds of feet away, 
smeared in blood and pieces of brain. But for now, the men helped Gage to get to the nearest hotel, about a mile away. Upon arrival, Gage is met by the innkeeper, who immediately calls for a doctor. Trying not to make too much of a fuss, the innkeeper offers Mr. Gage a place to sit and fetches him a refreshment for the wait. So there he is, Phineas Gage, sitting in the hotel courtyard with a split head, able to speak, but lost for words as he reviews in his mind what just happened. When the doctor finally arrives, Gage is able to describe everything about the incident to everyone's amazement. He answered all questions from the doctor in a perfectly rational and coherent way. All this, meanwhile his head wounds were being attended. Phineas Gage received extensive medical care for two months and was then pronounced cured. His wounds were healed. He was able to walk, talk and use his hands like any normal person. But this was the end of his lucky days. Soon, those around him started to notice he wasn't his old self anymore. Gage no longer was Phineas Gage, they said. He was a new person, one so different that his employers refused to take him back. Not even his friends recognized the previously smart, well-tempered, reliable man that Gage was known to be before the incident. This new person could not manage his temper. He was unpredictable, uncivil, obscene. At times immovably stubborn and at others unable to make up his mind. Gage had lost any ability to plan for the future and to make good decisions. After a few years of going from job to job, sometimes getting fired, and others quitting out of the blue, Gage joined the circus as a freak of nature, where he showcased his head wounds and the tamping iron, now an inseparable companion. Not lasting long in the circus either, he tried his luck in South America, but also at a loss. Gage ended up living in San Francisco with his mother and sister as their dependent for the rest of his life. In 1861, at age 38, 13 years after that freakish afternoon in Vermont, Phineas Gage dies during a seizure. But this is not the end of the story for Phineas Gage. John Harlow, the physician who made sure that Gage's wounds would heal, had been perplexed ever since by the sudden transformations in Gage's personality. And this was even more puzzling considering the remarkable preservation of Gage's motor and speaking abilities. After hearing of Phineas Gage's death, the restless doctor had to write to Gage's sister, asking for his body to be exhumed for scientific study. Luckily for all of us, she said yes. Yay! Phineas Gage's skull, along with his stamping iron, that had been buried next to his body, were unearthed 
and taken for a study by Dr. Harlow and his peers in the scientific community. To this day, the skull is kept at the Warren Medical Museum of the Harvard Medical School in Boston. Now that's what I call a prologue. Today we are going to talk about the emotional foundations of consciousness and reason. Ooh. And we'll do this with the help of a book called Descartes' Era by Antonio Damasio, who is a professor of neurology, of neuroscience and of psychology in the University of Southern California. And that's just on Mondays. Damasio's life work offers a unique contribution to the task of understanding how human condition. If you need to fall in love with humanity again, his books are a great place to start. In Descartes' era, Damasio's first book, he tells us how his interest over the fate of Phineas Gage led him to a string of unusual findings. Revelations so contradictory to our current understanding that its impact has yet to fully permeate into our Western culture. Through this book about emotion, reason, and the human brain, we can start to unveil the role of emotions in life. Can we really function as rational human beings without emotions? What do you think happened to Phineas Gage? The answer started taking shape when Damasio and his wife, Hannah, also a neuroscientist, were given the chance to examine Phineas Gage's skull along with his iron rod. Using cutting-edge 3D imaging technology, they scanned the skull and created a virtual model of Gage's brain. Through this same technology, they recreated the trajectory of the piercing iron into the brain. Now the two scientists could pinpoint where Phineas Gage's brain had been hit and which specific cerebral structures had most likely been affected. The 3D computer model from Team Damasio showed that the main area of damage to Phineas Gage's brain was a section called ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Now, don't get scared. We can simply call it V-spot for short. But hey, if these strange words made you feel uneasy for a second, congratulations, your V-spot is working. You'll see what I mean later. And rest assured, the V-spot also works for pleasure. Now, how important is this specific part of the brain? The ventromedial section, or V-spot, is implicated in the processing of risk and fear. It plays a role in the inhibition of emotional responses. It is critical to the process of decision-making and self-control and it's also involved in the cognitive evaluation of morality. So, yeah, kind of important. Perhaps now we can start to understand Phineas Gage's post-accident behavior. But still, this conclusion was being drawn from a computer model of a dead person's skull and a collection of third-person accounts of Phineas Gage's change of character. The confirmation of the link between the role of this particular area of the brain and Phineas Gage's altered behavior 
would have to come from the study of living people with similar brain damage and impairments. What Damasio needed was a modern-day Phineas gauge. So, he bought a drill, some gunpowder and... I'm just kidding. One day, Damasio got a new patient referred to his neurology practice. His name was Elliot, and he was a brain cancer survivor. A few years before, Elliot's brain tumor had been extracted by surgery. But that meant that a portion of Elliot's brain had also been removed. Can you guess what part of the brain that was? You know the name, come on. Elliot's doctors couldn't detect any side effect from the brain loss sustained in the operation. Elliot was told to go back to his old life. But life seemed to object to this. None of this was known to Damasio yet. For the moment, Elliot was just a new patient who looked nothing like someone that is missing part of his brain. In fact, in his first meeting with Elliot, Damasio saw him as a charming young man, smart and very well informed about current events, with an excellent memory, a good sense of humor, and strong business skills. This was the same Elliot that everyone was familiar with before his brain surgery. But under that veneer of normality, Elliot was drifting, as if left without an inner compass, unable to make the simplest self-interest decisions that most of us make every day, without hesitation. His apparently intact business skills now counted for nothing, as Elliot pursued reckless business ventures against all warnings of family and friends. He was no longer capable of holding a job. His marriage had fallen apart. Without a source of income, he now lived in the custody of a sibling. To make it worse, Elliot was being denied disability benefits, because medically, he was considered to be in full possession of his rational abilities. A man once seen as a role model was now simply thought to be lazy or faking the whole thing, because according to the doctors, Elliot showed no sign of impairment when he was given standard intelligence tests. Sounds familiar? So what was causing this erratic behavior in a man whose intellect was considered to be intact? The experts were convinced that Elliot's condition could not be neurological. It had to be psychological or psychiatric. But Damasio knew that this distinction between diseases of the brain and diseases of the mind was an old misconception of human biology, one so deeply rooted in our culture that it still affects society and medicine to this day. The conventional scientific perception was failing to solve the riddle that was Elliot post-surgery. And Damasi was also having some trouble to find what was wrong with Elliot. But then Damasi realized that all the focus had been 
on Eliot's intelligence and his instruments of rationality. Until then, no attention had been paid to Eliot's emotions. Perhaps because there wasn't much to pay attention to. You see, apart from looking emotionally contained, at first glance nothing seemed abnormal about Eliot's emotions. But thinking back of his sessions with Eliot, Damasio felt that something was missing. As he writes, and I quote, Eliot was able to recount the tragedy of his life with a detachment that was out of step with the magnitude of the events. He was always controlled, always describing scenes as a dispassionate, uninvolved spectator. Nowhere was there a sense of his own suffering, even though he was the protagonist. It became clear that the magnitude of his distance was unusual. I found myself suffering more when listening to Eliot's stories than Eliot himself seemed to be suffering. End quote. Damasio was on to something. He decided to test Eliot's emotions with a test created by one of his colleagues. In this test, the subject was shown a series of emotionally charged images aimed at provoking an emotional response, whether positive or negative. After a few sessions with this method, Eliot confessed that ever since his surgery, he was aware of the change in his ability to feel. Eliot recognized how topics that would once evoke a strong emotion no longer cause him any reaction, pleasant or unpleasant. Just take a moment and imagine that. Not feeling pleasure when you look at a painting you love, or when you hear your favorite piece of music. Imagine your emotions muted forever. Even if you were aware of the intellectual contents of what you were seeing or listening to, knowing that in the past, these were sources of great pleasure. This was pretty much Eliot's predicament. To know, but not to feel. Could this reduced emotion, this absence of feeling, be a factor in Eliot's decision-making failures? This was Damasio's suspicion. But first he needed to make sure that, emotions aside, Eliot's knowledge resources were still intact. Resources that we all use in our daily lives when we're dealing with personal, financial and social choices. So, with the help of another colleague, Damasio presented Eliot with a series of different tasks involving ethical dilemmas, financial questions, and social situations. For example, on one of the tasks, the subject had to decide and explain whether or not someone should steal a drug to prevent his wife from dying. As in all previous tests, Eliot performed like someone without any brain damage would. But the Eureka moment was right around the corner. Damasio writes that, at the end of one session, after Eliot had produced an abundant quantity of options for action, all of which were valid and implementable, Eliot smiled, apparently satisfied with his rich imagination, but added, and after all this, I still wouldn't know what to do. 
What does this mean? Because Elliot still had all his intellectual and reasoning abilities intact, whenever presented with a problem, he could, just as easily as we can, come up with several modes of action, determine possible outcomes, and predict social consequences. What he couldn't do, at the end of this deliberation process, was to choose a course of action. He couldn't reach a decision, as if no conclusion was being drawn from all the logical inferring. This, my friends, is pure reason, untainted by emotions. This is why Eliot could not even choose between a blue pen and a red pen. And this is true, by the way. At best, Eliot took more than the adequate time to make up his mind about something as frivolous as choosing a pen. Can't he choose because he's colorblind? Or because he can't remember having a preference between those two colors? No. Eliot can't choose between blue pen or red pen, because nothing in him is signaling that one pen is preferable or worse than the other. Elliot cannot choose, because he cannot feel. Ever wondered why we spend over half an hour trying to choose what to watch on Netflix? There's too much to choose from and often none of the options stand out. Emotions are what mark in our brain the options that stand out during our reasoning process, in either a good way or a bad way. Emotions are what narrows down the range of options for us to work with towards a decision. Without these so-called markers of emotional states, your mind would endlessly produce more and more scenarios, and none of them would stand out as particularly good or bad for you. More to the point, none of the imagined options would impel you to act. If not for these feelings that sometimes we're not even consciously aware of, our working memory would inevitably become overloaded with the amount of scenarios that our mind is producing, without ever holding on to any of them. As a result, it's much more likely that we end up choosing incorrectly, against what is best for us, or that we simply fail to choose, paralyzed by the lack of emotional feedback. This emotional component in the reasoning process is what allows you to select out of dozens just a handful of options, marked by how they make you feel. Let's pause for a moment and reflect. At this point, some of you may feel confused, doubtful, even skeptical of what you've heard so far. I want you to cling on to that feeling. Come on. Do you really think it's rationality making you uneasy? But let's address some of those doubts and objections you may have. You may be asking, shouldn't we choose facts over feelings? Okay. First of all, this really isn't about feelings versus facts. This isn't even about emotions versus reason. By all means, whenever possible, go with the facts. But facts without the emotional feedback to mark and classify them 
are just data. Data doesn't choose itself, you do. Because you feel something about it. And you know why we can all choose differently presented with the same information? Yes, you guessed it. Emotions are also largely responsible for subjectivity. Even if, for you, facts are sacred, that's a pretty strong feeling towards facts right there. You may also be wondering, aren't emotions harmful to decision-making? Let's remember the first rule of gathering thoughts. Life is complex. There are no simple answers. You know, few things in life are simply good or unambiguously bad. Chief of all, nature. But let me use an easier example. Technology is neither good nor bad. It can be used both for good purposes and for bad purposes. Likewise, rain isn't naturally good or bad. We know it's necessary. If it rains too much, though, we're in trouble. If it doesn't rain at all, you guessed it, we're in deep trouble. So, are emotions really bad? No. Emotions are emotions. They are a part of who we are. And as science has been uncovering, it turns out that we need emotions to make decisions. Good ones and bad ones. Now, can emotions lead to bad decisions? Sometimes, yes, absolutely. Can the absence of emotions lead to better decisions then? As we've seen with Phineas Gage and Elliot, a permanently reduced or complete lack of emotional abilities would turn our lives into a collection of bad decisions and paralyzing hesitance. But for those of us with a normal brain, in some instances, Bypassing your emotions can result in a better decision. Let me give you an example. One day, Damasio was having a session with another patient like Elliot. It was winter and some freezing rain had fallen the night before. Damasio wanted to know if his patient who drove to the office had had any trouble during the ride. His patient replied that he did come across some cars and trucks skidding off the road due to the ice. He'd noticed how, as soon as someone's vehicle started tailspinning, the driver would panic, hit the brakes, and end up in the nearest side ditch. But no amount of tailspinning could trouble this man, who calmly continued to drive with the adequate precautions for driving on icy roads. In this particular case, this unemotional man had the advantage. Unmoved by fear, panic, or the danger of any knee-jerk reaction, his reason could take over, allowing him to drive safely to Damasio's office. That description alone was enough to astound Damasio. The session was over, and for the next encounter, the doctor suggested either Monday or Wednesday of the following week. The patient pulled out a notebook to consult his calendar, and for almost half an hour, went on listing all reasons for and against each of the dates. Previous engagements, proximity to other prearrangements, probable weather conditions, 
anything one could think of from just a choice of two dates. Damasio listened patiently to this endless cost-benefit analysis until he finally had to tell his patient he should come on Wednesday. The patient said, that's fine, closed his appointment book and left. As with the blue pen and the red pen dilemma, even a choice between only two options inevitably turns into an endless fact-gathering exercise when no emotional feedback is there to mark which of those facts particularly affect you. In summary, there are some times when emotions can muddle and distort what would be the best and most effective course of action to implement. Depending on the context, fear can be one of such misleading emotions. But fear can also save your life. That's one of evolution's oldest tools of survival. Despite some particular instance when a strictly rational approach is more effective, let me show you why, even with the occasional bad decision, it's better to also count with emotions in our reasoning process. Let's say you have a problem. If you're someone like Elliot or Gage, you think about it for a while and come up with a few possible solutions. But you don't know which ones are potentially good or which ones can get you into even more trouble. You don't feel anything towards them. They're just options. So, you struggle to choose. But let's say you eventually do pick one and make a decision. Whatever consequences come out of that choice, be they good or bad, wonderful or disastrous, you'll be indifferent to it. You'll feel neither rewarded nor punished for your actions. You won't learn anything for the future. And when life throws you another problem, perhaps even similar, you will be no wiser than before. It's very likely that you'll decide poorly again, because you don't know what to avoid. Well, that's life without an emotional compass. What's it like when you do have this biological feedback mechanism on your side? Remember the first time you were told not to play with fire? I'm sure that did it for you, right? No, it didn't. It wasn't until you burned yourself that you understood what your parents were warning you about. You learned because you felt pain. And that was your lesson for the future. Now, imagine that the very first time you got burned, you wouldn't feel anything. No pain, no pleasure, nothing. I think it's safe to say that by now you'd be toast. So you make a bad decision. You get a bad outcome. That makes you feel bad. You learn a lesson for the future. Because you'll want to avoid that unpleasant feeling the next time. You make a different decision. You get a good result. That makes you feel rewarded. You also learn something useful for the future. Whether you feel punished or rewarded after a particular choice, those feelings can indicate how useful that choice was to the advancement of your purposes. That's exactly how our body regulates all the biological needs to ensure its survival. Together, emotions and feelings are the bedrock of our experience of life. The very act of perceiving, of becoming conscious of something in your mind is largely shaped and supported by these biological inputs. 
If you want to go deeper on how emotions lay the foundations for our consciousness, do read Damasio's second book, The Feeling of What Happens. Masterpiece. So, how do you know what's right? We feel it. If we later learn that we were wrong, we also feel it. Although, most of us don't really like to feel this one. And the less we like to confront ourselves with this bad feeling, the less we learn. How do you choose between multiple options? We choose from the ones that are more emotionally relevant to us. And finally, are we humans rational or are we emotional? Our culture will have us think that we are rational beings with the drawback of emotions. In reality, we are deeply emotional beings with the capacity for reason. Or, as Damasio says, we're not thinking machines that feel. We are feeling machines that think. Why have I bothered to tell you all this? What does it have to do with the podcast's mission? Two reasons. In the first episode, we talked about the need to contend with our imperfect, complex human nature before we can ever aspire to reach a higher consciousness or work towards a better world. Today, we've taken the first step into the dark corners of our human nature. Our first peek into what happens beneath the surface. And what I see is that in our love of science and our full trust in reason, we've become too self-conceited about the unimportance of emotions in the shaping of our human existence. Because we think we're so rational and immune to the follies of feeling, which we see as an excess, we are all the more vulnerable to our emotional pitfalls. This is a huge blind spot that we willfully keep and pet. And the irony is that we live in a system that feeds off this blind spot. There is a machine that thrives in our refusal to learn and study our human nature. You're not convinced. Let me read you something that encapsulates this. In theory, everybody buys the best and cheapest commodities offered on the market. In practice, if everyone went around pricing and chemically testing before purchasing the dozens of soaps or fabrics or brands of bread which are for sale, economic life would become hopelessly jammed. To avoid such confusion, society consents to have its choice narrowed to ideas and objects brought to its attention through propaganda of all kinds. There is consequently a vast and continuous effort going on to capture our minds in the interest of some policy or commodity or idea. I'm not going to say yet who I've just quoted, because we're going to talk about this person and his work in our next episode. But think about what he said. In theory, we're all sufficiently rational to make all our choices based in facts. In reality, we don't go around compiling all the facts surrounding every product that we consider buying. That would be chaos. And I think by now you have a good idea as to why. How does advertising work? Do ads show you the facts and features of what they're selling? 
What do you think marketers target? I think you know what I'm talking about. Nobody buys a Ferrari because it's the most practical for school runs and shopping. Most of our purchases are not for rational reasons. Likewise, how do politicians stand out from each other? Do they give you the facts about policies, laws and the economy? You don't vote for Obama, Bernie, Trump or whatever politician because they are facts and science incarnated. You vote for a vision. Something that moves you, that stirs your emotions and compels you to act. We've mentioned briefly how emotions shape our subjectivity. And that's why for every politician there is a voter. For every product there is a buyer. For every creed there is a believer. But we'll dive into these subjects on our next episode. There is this core emotional underpinning that shapes and informs our experience of the world. This is why Damasio says that to try to convince people to do things on the basis of rationality alone is a lost project. The danger for our culture to carry on believing that we value rationalism above everything without any efforts towards understanding and integrating our emotional side into the picture is that we will continue to fall prey of those who do understand and play with our emotional nature. People that go to great lengths to study and map patterns of motivation and behavior. Politicians and corporations. Remember Facebook and Cambridge Analytica? They just tapped into people's emotions. The second reason I want us to pay more attention to emotions, rather than warn against their potential hazards, is to reclaim their forgotten benefits. We're living as if feelings don't matter, or as if they can only be harmful, when in reality, feelings and emotions matter so much, too much for us to keep ignoring their role. Emotions mediate our coexistence. As Damasio writes, feelings, along with the emotions they come from, are not a luxury. They serve as internal guides and they help us communicate to others signals that can also guide them. And feelings are neither intangible nor elusive. Were it not for the possibility of sensing body states that were inherently ordained to be painful or pleasurable, there would be no suffering or bliss, no longing or mercy, no tragedy or glory in the human condition. People wonder if one day we will be all replaced by machines and ruled by algorithms. Considering our current paradigm, in a way, this is already the case. Numbers rule. The markets rule. The economy rules. Data and AI and algorithms rule. In other words, a particular set of facts rule. And facts don't care. Facts don't feel. We feel. We care. But we don't have a say. Emotions and feelings are here to stay. Isn't it time to learn about them? Before we finish, 
Some of you may be wondering about the title of Damasio's book, Descartes' Era. What was, in the end, René Descartes' era? In our previous episode, I teased about today's topic with a twist of Descartes' famous maximum, I think, therefore I am. What I said instead was, I feel, therefore I think, and therefore I am. This was my own naive way of introducing today's theme, and I'm sure that this would not be Damasio's choice of catchphrase, either to summarize his book or to point out and correct what Descartes and I also got wrong. You see, I messed up the order. It can't be I feel, therefore I think, and therefore I am. The awareness of being is not a thinking process. It's a feeling process. You feel alive, whether through pleasure or pain, cold, hunger, desire, fear, even boredom. You feel alive. And then, if you really want to, you think about it. Or as Damasio puts it, for us then, in the beginning it was being, and only later it was thinking. We are And then we think. And we think only in as much as we are, since thinking is indeed caused by the structures and operations of being. He's talking about emotions, guys. It's time for us to inaugurate the Gathering Thoughts bookshelf. And the first book to make it to the bookshelf is undoubtedly Antonio Damasio's Descartes' Era. If you haven't read it yet, give it a go. I assure you, you're in for a treat. We've reached the end of today's show. But don't worry, Gathering Thoughts will be back soon with more disruptive ideas and unusual content. And you don't want to miss what's next, do you? So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. You can find Gathering Thoughts on all the main providers. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and all the others. You can also follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates, teasers, and more exclusive content. Thank you so much for listening. I am Pedro Lima, and until our next time around, I hope all you eager minds keep doing what you do. Gathering thoughts. Stay curious. Stay safe.